Yes, and today, March 22nd, we recognize Dolores Nicholson of Marion, who, by my calculation, is 99 today. Congratulations to Dolores. And if you would like to hear your name mentioned for birthdays, be sure to let our office know at 515-243-6833. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service, and if you are her- hearing us on the television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at that number, 515-243-6833, so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services. And now we'll turn to today's one obituary, Kirk. Yes, thank you. Uh, Today's obituary is Nate Jones Sr. Nate passed away peacefully at home on March 17, 2024, surrounded by his loving family. Nate Jones was born in Des Moines, Iowa on January 10, 1949 to Thomas Jones and Vera Mae Thomas. His mother Vera was born in Buxton, Iowa, a coal mining town. Buxton has been called a utopia where black and white citizens lived and worked together in harmony in the early 1900s. Buxton welcomed and sought out black professionals like doctors, lawyers, and bankers, as well as the many miners. Descendants of Buxton have great pride in their heritage. Nate came from a very humble beginning. He was born on the southeast side of Des Moines, often referred to as the Bottoms. They had no running water and had to pull wagons several blocks to the historic southeast water trough, which still remains in its original location. After filling their buckets, they pulled it back home. When he was five, he moved to Hutton Street on the east side. He attended Wallace Elementary School, Amos Hyatt Middle School, and East High School. He also attended Tarkio College in Tarkio, Missouri and later took classes at Drake University where he met his wife, Joanna. He began his love for electrical work at Albright Davis, moving on to ABC Electric. There he learned the precise skills of the trade. In 1979, he quit ABC and started his own electrical contracting business, American Electric, becoming the first black electrical contractor in the city of Des Moines. He continued his business until he retired. Nate was an easygoing person, well-liked by all that met him. He always had a big, bright smile. He enjoyed coaching his sons and attending all his children's and grandchildren's sporting activities. He was always ready to give them advice on their sport. He and Joanna enjoyed playing cards with family and friends. He loved the outdoors, whether it be working in the yard and garage, shooting baskets, fishing, camping, and biking. He traveled throughout the United States, taking the family on many adventures. Nate is survived by his beloved wife of 53 years, Joanna, children Laura Fosselman, Nate Jr., Andrea Roundtree, and her husband Mark, Angela Jones with Kenyatta Elliman, and Zach Jones, grandchildren Anna, Elizabeth, Ariana, Olivia, Aaliyah, Brooklyn, Joshua, Mia, 
Adriana, Kayla, Isaiah, Noah, and Jonah. Eight, grand, uh, eight great-grandchildren, Jeremiah, Jackson, Emerson, Oliver, Elijah, Legend, Legacy, and Kiari. Sister Margaret and his brothers Thomas Sr., Stephen Gregory, or excuse me, Stephen, Gregory, Mark, and Darwin. Preceded in death were his parents, Thomas and Vera Mae Jones, brother Vincent, and his beloved grandson, Jeremiah Waddell. The family will greet friends Saturday, March 23, 2024, from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., with the funeral service to follow at 11 a.m. at Hamilton's Funeral Home, 5400 Southwest 9th in Des Moines, Iowa. Nate will be laid to rest at Glendale Cemetery in Des Moines. The family would like to express a heartfelt thank you to the staff of Unity Point Care at Home and Unity Point Hospice for the special care given to Nate. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family in loving memory of Nate, and online condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Thank you, Kirk. Good job. This is Kirk's first time with us on the radio. Okay, why have gas prices risen since February? It's by Paris Barraza. For many Iowans, commuting to work, school, and errands isn't possible without fueling up our cars. And while our wallets and budgeting may know the routine, we don't have to like it. The average cost of gas in Iowa as of March 21 is $3.35, nearly 20 cents less than the national average, according to the AAA. Unfortunately, Iowans are paying more at the pumps when compared to this time one month ago. Prices peaked at more than $5 a gallon in the middle of 2022 following Russia's invasion of Ukraine and global supply pressure. But Gas Buddy's 18-month average chart for costs in the U.S. Prices can fluctuate for several reasons, including less travel in the winter months, also, in the Midwest, refineries switch to a winter blend of gasoline to more easily start vehicles, and that blend is usually cheaper. Prices can increase when refineries switch back to the summer blends and travel increases. Now, Iowa's average gas price as of March 21 is $3.35, as said. The average on March 20 a day before was 331 instead of 35 which is 4 cents lower and the average price 1 week ago was 16 cents lower 1 month ago 34 cents lower the average price 1 year ago was 16 cents lower the average price of gas in Des Moines is 333 according to AAA and motorists in a or near Pleasant Hill should visit the Casey's at 1125 North Hickory Boulevard. As for the price of gas, there is $2.79, the lowest according recorded as of the morning of March 21, according to GasBuddy. Now, you can always visit GasBuddy.com to search statewide or locally to find the lowest prices for fuel uh, recorded at gas stations near you. The average price of gas in Ames is $331. The cost of gas uh, is 315 
the lowest recorded as of the morning of 21 at BP, located at 111 Duff Avenue in Ames. Average gas price in Iowa City, $3.29, but you know you could go over to Coralville to the Costco where the price is $2.99, the lowest recorded as of the morning of March 21, according to Gas Buddy. Okay, I think that about does it for that item. On to you, Kirk. Thank you. Back to the main section, we're looking at a headline that reads, Lawmakers Unveil Final Spending Deal. House aims to pass bill hours before shutdown deadline, Speaker says. And this article is accompanied by a uh, photograph, including the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson Center, touted policy wins for Republicans in the final set of spending bills. Top lawmakers have unveiled the final set of spending bills to fund the government long term, a major step forward that will soon bring an end to the constant government shutdown scares that have plagued the country. The massive spending legislation, which combines six spending bills into one funding package, comes after an original funding deadline of September 30th of 2023. Lawmakers were forced to extend the government funding on a short-term basis four times since then before coming to a final agreement. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, said on Wednesday morning the goal for the lower chamber is to pass the bill on Friday just hours before the government will shut down at 12.01 a.m. Saturday. Some Senate leaders have expressed hope that they can approve the legislation by the funding deadline, but last-minute snags and holdups have often delayed passage in the upper chamber. That means a shutdown could still hit the country, albeit a brief one with minor effects over the weekend. Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat from Washington State, chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, expressed optimism Congress could make the Friday deadline, saying at a weekly news conference, no one should want a shutdown, no one should cause a shutdown, let's pull together and get this done. Both parties claim victories in the bipartisan deal. Johnson told reporters on Wednesday that Republicans secured additional beds to detain migrants at the southern border and more funding towards enforcement of the law rather than just processing when it comes to the nation's immigration system, among other wins. House Republicans have achieved a significant conservative policy wins, rejected extreme Democrat proposals, and imposed substantial cuts to wasteful agencies and programs while strengthening border security and national defense, Johnson said in a statement following the bill's release. Murray said Wednesday the deal doesn't have the bills that the Democrat would have written on their own, but Democrats were able to fight off hundreds of GOP-backed policy add-ons. Now we have a good bipartisan bill that protects, the ab protects absolutely essential investments in the American people. This year's spending bills were divided into two packages. The first one cleared Congress two weeks ago, just hours before a shutdown deadline for the agencies funded through the bills. Now Congress is focused on the second, larger package, which includes about $886 billion for the Defense Department, about a 3% increase from last year's levels. The 1,012-page bill also funds the Departments of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, Labor, and others. 
non-defense spending will be the relatively flat or will be relatively flat compared with the prior year, though some such as the Environmental Protection Agency are taking a hit, and many agencies will not see their budgets keep up with inflation. When combining the two packages, discretionary spending for the budget this year will come in to about $1.66 trillion. That does not include programs such as Social Security and Medicare and financing the country's rising debt. Johnson promoted the bill as serious commitment to strengthening national defense by moving the Pentagon toward a focus on its core mission while expanding support for those serving in the military. The bill provides for a 5.2% pay increase for service members. One of the changes Johnson cited for Republicans was prohibiting funding through March 2025 for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which is the main supplier of food, water, and shelter to civilians in Gaza. Republicans are insisting on cutting off funding to the agency after Israel alleged that a dozen employees of the agency were involved in the attack on that Hamas conducted in Israel on October 7th. The prohibition concerns some lawmakers because many relief agencies say there's no way to replace its ability to deliver the humanitarian assistance that the United States and others are trying to send to Gaza, where one quarter of the 2.3 million residents are starving. Democrats emphasize that humanitarian assistance will increase overall, though. Murray also highlighted a $1 billion increase for Head Start programs and new child care centers for military families. And Democrats played up a $120 million increase in funding for cancer research and a $100 million increase for Alzheimer's research. Among the few policy provisions that House Republicans did secure was a requirement that allows only the American flag and other official flags to fly over U.S. diplomatic facilities. Under the Biden administration, U.S. embassies have been invited to fly the pride flag or light up with rainbow colors in support of the LGBTQ community. There is also a provision that prevents the Consumer Protection or Product Safety Commission from banning gas stoves, but the White House has said President Joe Biden would not support a ban, and the commission, an independent agency, says no such ban was in the works. Spending in the bill largely tracks with an agreement that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy worked out with the White House in May 2023, which restricted spending for two years and suspended the debt ceiling into January 2025 so the federal government could continue to pay bills. Murray issued a joint statement after the bill's release with Senator Susan Collins, Republican out of Maine, praising the package of bills and urging colleagues to vote for it. There's zero need for a shutdown or chaos, and members of Congress should waste no time in passing these six bills, which will greatly benefit every state in America and reflect important priorities of many senators, the senator said. Johnson said that after the spending package passes, the House would next turn its attention to a bill that focuses on aiding Ukraine and Israel. The lawmakers are scheduled to be away from Washington for the next two weeks. The Senate has already approved a $95.3 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, but Johnson has declined to bring that up for a vote. Options exist if Trump can't post bond. 
New York Attorney General Letitia James could swiftly move in on former President Donald Trump's bank accounts and real estate if Trump doesn't put up $454 million or get a bond for the civil fraud judgment that James won against him. Trump's 30-day deadline to post a bond or deposit to block James from collecting while he appeals the verdict arrives on Monday. It's not looking good for the real estate mogul. Trump's lawyers said earlier this week that 30 bonding companies have so far turned him down. The Trump legal team is pleading with a New York appeals court to issue an order that would block James from collecting until after his appeal runs out, which could take years. Jocelyn Nager, a New York lawyer who focuses on debt collection and commercial litigation, told USA Today that James can freeze Trump's bank accounts quickly if she knows where they are by sending a subpoena to the bank or asking a marshal for an immediate levy on the bank. It is not instantaneous, but it's very quick. It's very fast. It's a question of how fast that document can be served on the bank, Nigger said. Judge Arthur Engeron concluded that Trump had profited with better loan and insurance terms from years of fraudulently inflating the value of his assets. The $454 million is the combination of the ill-gotten gains and interest. Engeron imposed about $10 million in separate liability against Trump's two eldest sons, Eric and Don Jr., and former Trump Organization executive Alan Weisselberg. The approximately $454 million New York judgment was applied to Trump and certain Trump entities through, quote, joint and several liabilities, which means that James could go after Trump for the entire amount or pursue the entities for the money. Engeron said that form that form of liability is warranted when misconduct by the company and a top controlling officer is indistinguishable. Trump claimed on social media this week that he isn't able to appeal his loss in the case unless he can put up the money. But that isn't true. Uh, Mitchell Epner, a longtime New York litigator who focuses on commercial and white-collar issues, told USA Today, quote, Mr. Trump is neither woefully uninformed he is either woefully uninformed or lying. He absolutely can appeal, and he already is appealing, Epner said. If he doesn't post the bond and she collects the money and he eventually wins the appeal, he gets the money back plus 9% interest, he said. That doesn't mean, however, that there wouldn't be significant downsides for Trump if he can't block James from collecting. Quote, the problem is that the properties might be sold, so he might be able to recover a money judgment for the value of the property, but that's not what he wants. He doesn't really want to have the property dismantled. Stuart Sterk. 
director of the Center for Real Estate Law and Policy at the uh, Cardoza School of Law, told USA Today. What's more, seized property that's sold through a court-ordered auction might go for less than fair market value. And if Trump wanted to buy it back later, he might have to pay the full market price, according to Ebner. Because whoever's brought it, uh, bought it out of the auction is going to demand full market value, Ebner said. When it comes to going after real estate, the judgment immediately becomes a lien on the real estate Trump owns in Manhattan because it's in the same county, New York County, that the judgment came from, Hager said. We are prepared to make sure that the judgment is paid to New Yorkers, James told ABC News last month. For properties outside New York County, but within New York State, James would need to take additional actions to get the lien applied there, Nigger said. It would also be easier to sell real estate belonging to a Trump corporate entity than a real estate that is only under Trump's name because New York provides added protections for residents. James could use the judgment to go after Trump's assets in other states, such as Florida, where Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club is located, through a process called domesticating the judgment in that other state. That option is very likely available to James, Epner suggested. The courts of the other 49 states and the District of Columbia don't really have discretion about whether or not to allow the New York judgment to be domesticated in that state because the Constitution has something called the Full Faith and Credit Clause, which requires each state to give full faith and credit to the judgment of the other states, he said. There are only some exceedingly narrow exceptions to that. Once the New York judgment was turned into a Florida judgment, James would need to follow Florida-specific rules for collecting, just as she has to follow New York's rules for collecting in New York. There's a lot that you can do here in New York, Nager said. It's not just limited to real estate. For instance, if the Trump Organization, which is one of the Trump's entities subject to the judgment, owns a property in Manhattan with tenants who pay rent, you can have their rental payments redirected, Nagel said. Funds in New York bank accounts would be the fastest thing to get, followed by property that isn't real estate, followed by real estate, according to Epner. Real estate is slowest because it has to go through a process that's equivalent to a foreclosure sale, he said. If there are bank accounts in New York, those can be frozen essentially immediately if she already knows where they are and the turnover of the funds in a bank account would be measured in days or weeks, Epner said. Biden cancels billions more in student loan debt, 78,000 public service workers to get relief. The White House announced Thursday it is waiving another $5.8 billion in student loans for 78,000 public service workers. 
The administration is also sending emails signed by President Joe Biden to another 380,000 borrowers in the public sector to let them know that they're one or two years away, one to two years away from getting the same debt cancellation. The latest student loan relief comes amid the president's bid for re-election and is likely to rankle Biden's Republican opponents who have criticized him for trying to buy votes. Others have said the president's loan forgiveness efforts have come at the expense of the rollout of of the new college financial aid form, which has been rife with errors. It is yet another instance in recent months of Biden appealing directly to the borrowers he's singling out through various executive tools at his disposal. This time, he is expanding his messaging campaign to include Americans on the brink of qualifying for similar cancellation under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, a special loan repayment plan for teachers, firefighters, and other public service workers. In his State of the Union address this month, Biden underscored the reforms he's made to the program by increasing the number of borrowers eligible for relief. When I was told I couldn't universally just change the way in which we dealt with student loans, I fixed two student loan programs that already existed to reduce the burden of student debt for nearly 4 million Americans, he said. Under the PSLF program, Borrowers who have worked in public services and paid down their loans for a decade or more qualify for full relief from their federal student loans. In 2021, the administration tacked on more time to thousands of borrowers' repayment timelines. Officials have been adjusting the accounts of millions of PSLF borrowers as well as those who are in payment plans based on their incomes. They're expected to calculate or wrap up their calculations by July. Europe's battle with Apple offers U.S. preview. London. It's likely to take years before the U.S. government's massive antitrust lawsuit against Apple is resolved, but the iPhone maker's troubles with European regulators offers a glimpse at what changes American customers may see down the line. The U.S. lawsuit seeks to stop Apple from undermining technologies that compete with its own apps in areas such as streaming, messaging, and digital payments. The Department of Justice also wants to prevent the tech giant from building language uh, language into its contracts with developers, uh, accessory makers, and consumers that lets it obtain or keep a monopoly. These are similar to themes that the European Commission, the, the EU's executive arm and top antitrust enforcer, and Apple <clears throat> have been wrangling over for, uh, for years. EU antitrust watchdogs have launched multiple antitrust cases accusing Apple of violating the 27-nation blocks competition laws, which also imposing tough digital rules aimed at stopping tech companies from cornering digital markets. But uh, when Spotify complained to the European Union, antitrust regulators opened a years-long investigation that resulted in an order for Apple to stop such behavior and came with a whooping $2 billion fine aiming at deterring the company from doing it again. 
Apple tried to resolve a second EU antitrust case by proposing to let third-party mobile wallet and payment service providers access the and tap and go payment functions on its iOS operating systems. Apple offered the concession to the European Commission, the bloc's executive arm and top antitrust enforcer, uh, after it accused the company in 22 of abusing its do uh, dominant position by limiting access to its mobile payment technology. The EU's Digital Markets Act is a broad rule book that targets big tech gatekeeper companies with a set of do's and don'ts that they'll have to abide by. One of its goals is to break up closed tech ecosystems that lock consumers into one company's products or services. And under uh, the DMA, the tech companies won't be able to stop consumers from connecting with businesses outside their platforms. In a sign of that reluctance, EU regulators said that they wanted to question Apple over accusations that it blocked video game company Epic Games from setting up its own app store. But Apple later reversed course and cleared the way for Fortnite maker Epic to set up its rival app. Well, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barbara Martin and Kirk Anderson. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Jim with our next article. Thank you, Rachel, and good morning, everyone. We're going to start with the opinion page of USA Today. Uh, don't count on at-home colon cancer tests. This written by James E. Causey of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He is an Ideas Lab reporter at the Milwaukee paper. <clears throat> I'm 54 and I just got my first colonoscopy. I'm glad I did. My doctor removed four polyps during a 25-minute procedure. Two of the four were the type that, if left alone, could have the potential to turn into colon cancer. Last year I did an at-home test that came back negative and was told I didn't need to do it again for three years. My wife got a colonoscopy last year and doctors discovered a non-cancerous polyp. She had been on me for quite some time and kept telling me to get a real colonoscopy. I finally decided to schedule an appointment after the American Cancer Society reported arrived adults. 
March is colorectal cancer awareness month. The profile of this deadly form of cancer ebbs and flows. Most recently, the death of Chadwick Boseman, the star of Black Panther in 2020, followed a four-year battle with colon cancer and boosted awareness. Bozeman, who also starred as baseball legend Jackie Robinson in 42, was not yet 40 years old when he received a stage 3 cancer diagnosis in 2016. Having a procedure like this is not fun, and it's not something people like to talk about. The funny thing is that when you do talk about it, everyone has a story about themselves, a friend, or a loved one. Nothing I share here is intended to replace medical guidance from a trained professional. Each case is unique along with family histories, and that's precisely why I'm sharing my experience. Request the information, schedule an appointment, get this test done. It can save your life. One of those people with a story is Gallian Smith, 53, owner of, owner of G's Clippers Barbershop in Milwaukee. He knows all too well the importance of a colonoscopy. His father, Gallian Smith Sr., died of cancer, colon cancer in 2006 when he was just 62. He never got a colonoscopy. He didn't have any health problems until he started experiencing abdominal pains, Smith said. When Smith's father went to the hospital, he was already at stage four, which is considered the most serious case. <clears throat> he said misinformation, stigma, anxiety, or fear are some of the reasons why men don't get checked. They heard the prep is difficult and the procedure will be painful, he said, and to be honest with you, some men are uncomfortable in their own skin. They fear something going on inside of them. He is hosting a panel discussion March 30th with a doctor and those impacted by colon cancer at the barbershop, 2200 North Drive, Martin Luther King Jr. Drive in uh, Milwaukee from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. Colorectal cancer is the second most common cause of cancer-related death in men and women, so we need to talk about it, said Smith, who gets tested every three years because of his family history. Like Smith, I have my own family experience. My first cousin, Marshall Lewis, who is a spitting image of my mother, was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer in 2018. She underwent surgery and had a foot of her colon removed. Today, she's cancer-free, but at the time of the diagnosis, things did not look good. While colon cancer runs in my family, I was hesitant to get a colonoscopy because I didn't want to drink a gallon of the polymer-based laxative, so my physician told me about a do-it-yourself home kit called Cologuard um, six years ago. He said the kit could determine if there was blood in my stool, a common sign of colon cancer, or the precancerous polyps. It seemed easy enough, so I told him to order the test. The kit was shipped to my home in a week. I placed this cup-like device over my toilet, 
to collect a stool sample. Then once the sample was in the cup, I followed the instructions in the patient guide and sent the collection back to a lab. Two weeks later, I received my negative result. At the time I received my results, my cousin discovered she had cancer. Colorectal cancer arises from the inner lining of the large intestine. It usually begins as an abnormal growth or polyp in the colon or rectum. I took another Cologuard test last March and received another negative cancer screening and was told I wouldn't need to test again for three years. While colon cancer screenings for black Americans were recommended to begin at age 45, even before this became the recommendation for all adults with average risk, the American College of Physicians now advises black men and women to undergo their first screening at age 40. African Americans are not only at greater risk of colon cancer than other races, they also have higher death rates from colorectal cancer when compared with other races. The prep is worse than the procedure itself. You're advised not to eat solid foods a day and a half before. You can have jello and juices as long as they're not red. You can also have broth, which helped me out a lot. They advised me to take a stool softener first. And then I started the strong laxatives to clear my digestive tract. Take care of everything before you start the laxatives because you will not be leaving the house. You'll drink a half gallon of the liquid laxative in the evening and finish the other half about six hours before your appointment. I went to the bathroom nearly two dozen times, but honestly, I felt pretty good. Schedule your appointment as early as possible because you can't have anything, not even water, three to four hours before your procedure. My appointment was at 9.30 a.m. When they got me to my room, I changed into a gown. Again, a personal experience intervened. My nurse shared the story of her brother-in-law who discovered he had colon cancer when he was at stage three. She said he had no prior health issues before that, and he was 45. By the time he started cancer treatment, she said it was too late. He died shortly after that. Before my bed was rolled into the procedure area, the nurse connected me to an IV. I was administered fluids and would receive anesthesia. She asked if I wanted the drug where I would be in a twilight state or if I wanted to be completely knocked out. I chose to be knocked out. The procedure area was larger than a bedroom. The light was dim and Dr. Amir Patel from Frotert and the Medical College of Wisconsin assured me I would not feel a thing. The anesthesiologist placed me on oxygen before telling me to turn on my left side. When he started to give me the anesthesia, I could feel my hand burn a bit. The last thing I remember is asking how long my hand would burn. He told me I would not feel anything in 30 seconds. When I woke up, I was in the recovery room with my wife. Dr. Patel did his best to assuage my fear 
and say that even if the polyps were precancerous, because he removed them during the colonoscopy, there was no further cause for alarm. I would need to return in five years to be rechecked because the colonoscopy is the gold standard for colon cancer screening. When I checked the MyChart patient portal online, I discovered that two of the polyps could have turned cancerous if left alone. Seeing those results shook me a bit, but I'm glad I got screened when I did. And I didn't allow feeling inconvenienced for 48 hours stop me from getting a procedure that could save my life. You shouldn't either. The second um, piece on today's opinion page in USA Today is by Rex Hupke, who always writes um, tongue-in-cheek, you might say. Trump can't pay his legal bond. Here's how we can help. Say you're the likely Republican presidential nominee, and you have this darn half-billion-dollar fraud judgment against you, and despite touting yourself as an uber-successful bazillionaire, you can't manage to scrounge up the money to post bond while you appeal. We've all been there. And we should all sympathize with Donald Trump as he searches for loose change under the cushions of couches throughout his Mar-a-Lago resort and tries like heck to come up with enough cash to keep New York Attorney General Letitia James from seizing Trump Tower in Manhattan and renaming it the hum-a-few-bars-of-that-LOL building. In case you forgot, Trump was found liable for fraud, and last month New York Judge Arthur Engeron entered a more than $450 million judgment against the former president and his sons, writing of their business practices, The frauds found here leap off the page and shock the conscience. In order to protect assets while he appeals, Trump has to post a bond in the full amount of the judgment. On Monday, we learned that's proving tricky for the man who loves to boast of his incredible wealth. Trump's lawyers told a New York appeals court that getting a bond of that size is, quote, a practical impossibility, end quote. Clearly, our very rich, but apparently not quite as rich as he claimed, friend, Donald Trump, needs help pulling together some cash. Fortunately for him, I have some suggestions. A MAGA bake sale outside every rally. Anyone who's ever been part of a church or high school theater group knows the quickest way to raise funds is a good old-fashioned bake sale. I'm sure Trump and his family members know their way around a kitchen, so all they need to do is whip up a few thousand sticker doodles, brownies, and pound cake slices before every campaign rally. Have Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner man the goodie table outside the event and watch the mega bucks roll in. One secret advantage of this fundraising approach? Russian oligarchs love baked goods. Second idea, rent Eric Trump out as a clown for Florida-area birthday parties. It's all hands on deck when it comes to pulling together bond money for your pops, and what devoted son wouldn't don clown makeup and oversized red shoes to help dear old dad? Given Trump's popularity in Florida, I'm sure Eric Trump could make a small fortune playing 
Eric the Mega Clown at kids' birthday parties and perhaps occasional adult events, assuming they pay extra for his services and discretions. Put signs up all over town and hold a Mar-a-Lago yard sale. Like all incredibly wealthy businessmen who can't afford to pay bond on their half-billion-dollar civil fraud judgments, I'm sure Trump has a slew of possessions he has collected over the years that are just gathering dust. So, Mr. Former President, how about a springtime purge? Gather up the old chandeliers, classified documents, and gold-plated knick-knacks, the suits that no longer fit, and the large collection of Russian nesting dolls that you have for no particular reason, and host the first-ever Mar-a-Lago yard sale. Former First Lady Melania Trump could help out immeasurably with this event by selling the $51,500 Dolce & Gabbana jacket she wore to an international summit in 2017, or the roughly $50,000 crocodile Birkin bag from Hermes she carried as she left the White House for the final time. She also has that jacket with the words, I really don't care, do you, on the back, that she wore while visiting a migrant detention center in 2018. That has to be worth at least $5. Allow Americans to pay your bond if you promise to go away. The final and probably best way for Trump to drum up a huge amount of cash in a hurry is accepting this humble proposal. Allow me and millions of other sane Americans to chip in and cover your nut as long as you promise to go far, far away and never even say the word politics ever again. I am confident that we could crowdsource the bond money in approximately one minute if Trump pledged to exit the presidential race and spare us the daily dread of seeing what new hideous and unconscionable thing he has said or done. It's either that or he gets the money from some anonymous donor with a name like not Elon Musk or Radimir Tutin. I'd much rather we foot the bill, to be honest. That's by Rex Hupke, who's a columnist for USA Today. Thanks, Rachel. And uh, turning to sports, uh, <clears throat> we have just tons of uh, basketball for you today on uh, uh, television. Um, if if uh, you tune in uh, starting about 11.15 and want to watch the NCAA men's tournament games, uh, you can tune to CBS, True TV, and TNT, uh, also TBS. Um, and they're, they're on until um, into the evening hours. Lots of games today. Um, and college basketball women's tournament, uh, you can start tuning in at 10.30 today on the ESPN channels, uh, ESPN, ESPN2, uh, ESPNU, um, so ESPN News. So for basketball fans, men and women, those are the things to, to keep in mind. Uh, auto racing today uh, on FS1, we have the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series at 2.30 and at uh, 4.30, the NASCAR Xfinity Series uh, qualifying. Uh, College hockey is on the CBS Sports Network at 4 p.m. 
We've got North Dakota against Omaha in the semifinal. And then um, also following that at uh, 7.30, the uh, Denver and St. Cloud State semifinal. Uh, so they're getting into the finals of the hockey. Um, college softball, if you get uh, the uh, ACC Network, BTN Network, uh, uh, Southeast Conference Network, or Pac-12 Network. There are softball games starting at 5 o'clock uh, today. College wrestling, the NCAA Tournament, uh, Session 3 Championships are at uh, 11 p.m. and uh, uh, or at, at 11 a.m. and at uh, 7 p.m. And that's on ESPN. Figure skating at 7 uh, o'clock on USA. Golf, uh, you can watch some golf at uh, 1 o'clock. The PGA Tour Valspar Championship uh, on the Golf Channel. Major League Baseball Network uh, starting at noon. There's a couple of games today, New York Mets against the New York Yankees. And then at 3 o'clock, uh, a spring training game between uh, Texas and Cleveland. Uh, on NBA TV, you have your uh, NBA basketball uh, at 7 o'clock, Cleveland at Minnesota. So a wide raft of uh, sports events. Um, highlighted by the NCAA basketball tournaments today. And uh, then a, a short article here, uh, Iowa State's Crooks named honorable mention, AP All-American as freshman. This written by Tommy Birch of the Des Moines Register. Audi Crooks first season with the Iowa State women's basketball team has been full of big moments and giant accomplishments. She's already done something no other player in program history has accomplished. On Wednesday, she was an honorable mention uh, pick to the Associated Press All-America team. She's the 11th Cyclone, first Iowa State freshman to collect AP All-America honors. Crooks was richly deserving of the uh, accolades. The six-foot-three center who hails from Algona lived up to the big expectations placed upon her as one of the most decorated players in Iowa State's recruiting class. Crooks was a force in the post, averaging a team-high 18.9 points, 7.7 rebounds per game. The season's been full of firsts for Crooks, who broke Iowa State's single-season freshman record for points and field goals. Her success has earned Crooks some uh, accolades. Uh, she was named to the All-Big 12 coaches first team earlier this season. And just a few seconds before we turn to Dear Abby, another short article, Iowa Star Clark named first team, team AP All-America. Award season is here and Caitlin Clark is right in the middle of it. On Wednesday, the Iowa women's basketball star was named a first team Associated Press All-American for a third consecutive season, becoming the first player in program history to do so. This comes on the heels of being named a USBWA first team All-American on Tuesday. In the tournament, number one seed Iowa will take on the winner of 16 seeds Holy Cross and UT Martin, which was set to take place in Iowa City 
on Thursday. The Hawkeyes will face the winner of the play-in game on Saturday, and I believe that game is at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Time to turn to Dear Abby. There are two letters in today's column, so we'll each take one of them in the response. Dear Abby, my wife and I have been teachers since 1999. We married in 2011. She became vegan in 2017. It helped her beat diabetes, which I love. However, she's pure vegan for animal rights and listens to vegan podcasts all day long after teaching and on the weekends. I mean all day, every day, with earbuds in. I have to say knock-knock to even talk with her. Right now, she's listening to podcasts and messaging vegan people on social media and doesn't even realize I'm typing. I love my wife, but I can't escape the frustration of not being able to have a conversation with her about anything. We have no kids together, but I raised her son from seven years old. He moved to live with his dad because of her obsession with work and veganism. I love her, but the fridge is filled with kale. Should I stay or should I go? Signed, Afterthought in Oregon. Abby says, Dear Afterthought, tap your wife on the shoulder and ask her to remove her earbuds. When she does, give her an earful. Tell her you love her, but you need a partner who is willing to be more of a companion than she has become. Tell her you shouldn't have to ask permission to talk to her because of her preoccupation or obsession with her podcasts. If you want food in the house that isn't vegan, go out and buy some, and if she's unwilling or unable to accept and adapt, try marriage counseling before calling a lawyer. The marriage you have described is not a happy one, or you wouldn't have written to me. Thanks, Rachel. And uh, the second letter, Dear Abby, I'm growing concerned for my grandparents. They're in their late 80s and homebound. Recently, a new tenant moved into their garage apartment. They love her. The rest of the family is suspicious of her. She has no job, no car, has never paid rent. She frequently spends the day with my grandparents and recently helped them change all their usernames and passwords to something more simple and easy. My grandparents live on Social Security. They have no savings, and I don't believe they have a will. From my perspective, they are setting themselves up to be robbed, abused, and left high and dry by a crook disguised as their friendly tenant. Is this worthy of an adult protective services investigation? My grandparents guilt the rest of the family by saying, at least our tenant comes over often, unlike the rest of you. I live three hours away. Do I need to mind my own business? They aren't suspicious at all. And it's signed Dubious in Texas. Abby writes, Dear Dubious, an investigation is not an accusation. The relationship your lonely grandparents have with this tenant is unusual. Contact APS, inform them about what's going on with your grandparents, and let someone there decide whether your concerns are worth following up on. Better to be safe than sorry. 
That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. Earlier, you heard Barb Martin and Kirk Anderson. You can listen to IRA's programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.